Heavenly Lord, thank you, Father, for this evening. Thank you for bringing us together, Lord, to learn more about your word, Lord. We ask you, Father, that you will anoint Rabbi as he imparts the wisdom and the knowledge of your word, Lord, for us. And Father, that not only do we hear it, Father, but we hear it to ourselves and are able to spread the gospel to others. In the name of Amen. By the way, uh, sir, you don't really need to take your hat off. <laughs> okay. Remember, remember that the high priest had a turban when he went in to minister before the Lord. Yes. You and I can, uh, I can harass you at another time. <laughs> All right. Um, bit of review. Uh, if you are enthused about typology, you're going to be sorely disappointed uh, because we're not going to dive into a discussion of uh, the colors of the thread represent this, and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, in fact, uh, in this study on, on the tabernacle, we're probably not going to look at the tabernacle itself until next week sometime, I think. Lord willing, and uh, etc. Um, but as I was preparing for this, what I felt we needed to do was to spend much more time looking at the spiritual underpinnings, the spiritual principles that are involved in the tabernacle before we dive into uh, a, a discussion of what the tabernacle looked like uh, and at some point, we'll get into um, probably in a couple of weeks a discussion of the sacrificial system. Um, but tonight we wanted to continue with the basic theme of uh, some of the underlying spiritual principles. So first of all, review. And if you were not here, I will not pick on you. There were a couple of key words which we're going to look at, at in just one minute. But first of all, since it, it is a Bible study, let's turn to the Bible. Uh, Exodus 25, verses 1 to 9. And uh, let's see. Do we have a volunteer, Tristan? Sure. Okay. Exodus 39 verses 1 through 3. Yes. Okay. The notes, by the way, are on the center table, or maybe they mean they're over there. Okay. Go ahead. Next, they made woven garments of blue, purple, and Exodus 25, verse 1. No. Verse 1. What's this? Adonai spoke to Moses, saying, Tell B'nai Israel to take up an offering for me from any one of those heart, oh, for, from any one whose heart compels him, you are to take my offering. These are the contributions which you are to receive from him, gold, silver, and bronze. All the way through verse 9, please. 
blue, purple, and scarlet cloth, fine linen, and goat hair, ram skins dyed red, seal skins, acacia wood, oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil, and for the sweet incense, onyx stones and setting stones for the ephod and for the breastplate. Have them make a sanctuary for me, so that I may dwell among them. You are to make it all precisely according to everything that I show you, the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all the furnishings within, just so, that, just so you must make it. Thank you. So, if you were here last time, we looked at a couple of Hebrew words that give us some kind of a clue um, about the spiritual principles. In other words, what God is driving at. So, does anybody remember the two Hebrew words? Okay. Mikdash. And the other one? Well, that's part of Mikdash. That's good. I'll take it. Hmm? Shachan. Okay, and that is related to another word. Mishkan. Mishkan. Okay, progress. Huh? Mishkan. Okay, so... Um, What is God after, what is God interested in when he gives the instruction to the people of Israel about, about the tabernacle? He wants to dwell with the people. What does it mean that God wants to dwell with the people? He wants a relationship with them. Okay. So, in other words, he doesn't just want to have some kind of a structure but he wants to have a relationship with them. And this is something that periodically uh, I've heard people make uh, comments about, you mean like God had a relationship with the people of Israel? The answer is? Yes. Um, so when we talk about the Mishkan and God dwelling with people, uh, first of all, where was the Mishkan to be located? The center, uh, surrounded by, first of all, the tribe of Levi, and then surrounded by the, uh, the rest of the tribes. And so any time when the pillar of cloud uh, lifted, it was, a it was a sign for the Mishkan to be folded and carried very carefully. Um, and the same kind of order was to take place, still with God being in the center. Um, so part of the picture uh, to kind of tie into that is the fact that the, the Holy Spirit was active with the people of Israel. Um, how do we know that? Specifically to do what? Make the tabernacle. Okay, we'll get to that. Very good. 
um, the Holy Spirit was in, actively involved in the process of the construction of the tabernacle. Um, that's hugely important for us to realize because a lot of time when people talk about how the Holy Spirit was active in biblical times, what comes to mind? Rachel, since you're here, dear. with it tonight. I totally forgot what you said. Okay, that's fine. We'll pick on your mama. Acts like with Samson, his strength. Okay. All right. So, the judges of Israel um, or someone like David remember that the Holy Spirit came upon him and did not uh, leave him. The Holy Spirit was with him the rest of his life as was the case in Moses. So, either Acts um, of special power that people needed in order to be able to set the people of Israel free from uh, oppression. What's the other main uh, activity that we see uh, the Holy Spirit engaged with uh, in, in pre-Yeshua? Hmm? Well, creation is way, way back here. Hmm? Don't be bashful. Speak up. Someone other than the character in the back there. Mumbling something. I can't hear. Well, I'm getting the answers wrong. So. No, you're not getting the answers wrong. Uh, this is not a test. Pretty sure. Pretty sure. Yeah. The prophets. Yeah. Okay. Uh, how could the prophets prophesy unless they were uh, empowered by the Holy Spirit? Uh, remember in, in Haggai, uh, Haggai chapter 2, verse 5. I know we're all real familiar with Haggai, but in Haggai, uh, if you want to turn to it for just a minute, you may enter, ladies. And the notes are on the back, on the chair. Haggai chapter 2, verse Okay, so that, to me anyways, is pretty clear that the Holy Spirit was active, at least from the time that the people of Israel left Egypt and was consistently at work, uh, primarily through the prophets. And, and uh, God sent the prophets over and over and over again to get through to the people, and folks just did not get it. So, uh, Mishkan, obviously... Um, refers to God wanting to dwell, God wanting to have a relationship with people. Mikdash, uh, what does that have to do with? Hmm? 
set apart? Set apart, okay. Set apart for what purpose? Well, uh, holy and sacred, and specific purpose. And the specific purpose is? Unto God. Okay. Set apart unto God. To do what? To serve. To, to serve. serve. Okay. Um, remember the, the, the real odd scripture that we looked at last time in Zechariah 14 when it says that when everything is said and done, even the cooking pots shall be holy. Not that there's something spiritual about the cooking pots, but when everything is said and done, everything will be set apart unto God. There'll be nothing on this earth that is not set apart unto God. At least for me, that's quite a prospect. Um, so, the purpose for the tabernacle uh, was for, for God's dwelling. Um, and as a reminder, uh, more than a reminder, to the people of Israel that, that they were to be a holy people. Um, in Leviticus 18, the Lord says, I'm holy, you're to be holy. And, and by the way, the way this works is God says, I'm holy, and I hate everything that is not holy. Therefore, if you're my people, um, you're to be holy as well. Set apart uh, for my purposes, but also uh, to be holy as I'm holy, i.e., as far as loving the things that I love, hating the things that I hate. So, um, at the beginning of this chapter, now we, we, we want to come back to, to some key words. And the Lord said to Israel, you are to bring an offering to Umah. Um, a couple of things about that. Um, this word comes from the notion of something being raised, raised up, uh, meaning that a person would actively bring this and give it to the Lord. Um, and the way this plays out for us at Yeshua Tzion is we don't typically pass the plate, but rather we feel that whoever gives uh, a tithe or an offering needs to make a conscious decision because you know how it is when you pass the plate what typically happens you see your neighbor giving uh, yeah the sort of like the pressure well he gives she gave I need to give etc and etc uh, which is why for us giving is an act of of worship um, conscious worship of it, uh, which means you you make a decision to give um, but Toma has has a number of things in that are involved with it um, it always requires um, another word to, to be added to it uh, Nedava And what I wanted to point out is that God requires an offering. He says to Israel, I expect that you will bring an offering. 
But how we bring the offering is something that is up to us. And this is so this is typical of our relationship with the Lord to begin with. Um, it's collaborative. He invites us, he makes an offer to us, and we respond and and we grow because of it. Um, it's a mystery, but uh, reality is, folks, that God never, I shouldn't say never, God rarely beats us over the head, puts a gun to us and says, we'll do such and such. There's always the expectation on God's part that we will respond and respond willingly. And, and part, of our, part of what happens in our relationship with God is that initially we do one of these things. Okay, God, if I have no choice, I'll do it. At some point, something penetrates and we get the fact that what needs to happen is a desire on our part uh, to actively and consciously ask the Lord to show us what is, what is His will and pursue it. Um, we don't always start out that way. But hopefully as, as we grow into some degree of maturity in the Lord, that's what we want to do. Which is why we see this other word uh, that's used here, netava, um, and it's always connected. These two are, are connected because God doesn't want people to give uh, because they're forced. Because you know what happens when people give when they're forced or coerced. They resent it. They resent it. Um, I love the scripture that I'm sure we've we've been beaten over the head with, but I want to draw your attention to it anyways. This is Second Corinthians chapter nine verse seven. Um, we'll come back to Nedava in just a minute here. Let's see who can volunteer for us. Second Corinthians chapter nine verse seven. Connie. Yeah. Would you read for us, please? I sure will. How far? Oh, just one one verse. Okay. Let each one give as he has decided in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now, folks, how many have heard sermons on this verse? Uh, how many were ready to heave when you've heard sermons on this verse? Uh, I'm sorry, folks. I don't mean to put anybody down, but I've heard enough stuff over my 50 years as a believer to make me want to gag. Uh, and, and typically, it's something like God loves a hilarious giver, so let's let's have a good time as we as we give. And let me now tell you about the bills that we have to do. Yes. Um, and, and by the way, in case you wonder, uh, one of the words that's used there, compulsion, or, or uh, uh, they should not give under compulsion. What's, what's the other word? Grudgingly. Grudgingly, yeah. So uh, depending on your translation, uh, one of those words is lupe. Not lupe, but lupe. Uh, which means, which has to do with emotional and physical pain. 
And, and sometimes, uh, what troubles me, I, I'm kind of in a soapbox here, what troubles me is that when I go around and we talk to people about giving, which we don't do very, very often, by the way, uh, one of the things that comes up again and again is that people have been through uh, building campaigns where they were twisted every which way but loose. Um, this notion of lupe, it's like a Greek word which means physical and emotional pain. It's like we're going to close the door and you all are going to give a certain amount of money and we're not moving until you do. Uh, that's a real godly approach. Which, which is why at Yeshua Tzion, this is not to, to say we're perfect, everybody else is not, but at Yeshua Tzion we've made a determination that the building campaign, whatever the building campaign looks like, has to be God-driven, not flesh-driven, and that it has to be something that is nedava, uh, is given freely and generously. Um, and part of the picture is this word nedava has to do with the notion of this is something I want to do, I get pleasure out of doing it, <coughs> and furthermore, God and me are in cahoots, so of course I want to give, and he knows how much I can give, how much I can't give, and I do it because I want to please him. Nadava, out of a, a love relationship with the Lord, again, part of God dwelling with his people, and wanting to have a relationship with them. And because of that, whatever is given has to be given from that perspective. Uh, there are a couple of other expressions that are used in Exodus. Um, you don't need to turn to Exodus 35, verse 21, uh, that speaks about have people give whose heart is stirred and whose heart is lifted up. Same kind of an expression. Uh, because, as you know, if people are coerced to give, what will be the result? Well, what Kaylee said. Hmm? What Kaylee said. said. Alright, that will be the result. Resentment. Hmm? Resentment. Resentment, of course. But beyond resentment, on a person's part. The result for the person you gave or the one receiving it? Uh, the, the one receiving it, i.e. God. What will God think about uh, a giving or an offering that is done under compulsion? It's insincere. Yeah. It's insincere? Well, if the whole point is, is it's about establishing a relationship between you and God, and if, it's a, and if it truly is about worship, then if you're starting off on a footing where you feel disingenuous about what you've done, then the relationship is tainted from where you go. And so I would think that then Father would not, would not be, that would not be a relationship he would want to be part of, because it's not, it's not a pure relationship. In other words, the issue isn't the money. It's the heart. The mm -hmm. issue is always the heart, folks. 
That's what God always drives for, is to see a person's heart. Um, because even if there's a ton given, the heart stinks, and the result is uh, what we find in Malachi chapter 1. Let's flip to Malachi. Well, have your fingers handy, because we'll go back and forth. Malachi chapter 1, verse 8 to 9. And if you were here when we went through the, the study in Malachi, you will remember it. Let's see who is a good candidate. Dasa, you look like you were there. Chapter 1, verse 8 to 9. Two verses. You sacrifice fine animals to me. Isn't that wrong? You sacrifice evil or sick animals. Isn't that wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with this? Would he accept you, says the Lord who rules over all? Now you dare to ask me to show you my favor. But as long as you give offerings like these, how can I accept Jesus as the Lord? Yeah, I mean, what the Lord says in Malachi, Malachi, like Haggai is, like the prophets in general, strong stuff. You know, it's like uh, basically a shock, designed to be a shocking statement in order to get people's attention. And what the Lord is saying, uh, would you come up to someone of high importance and would you give them a lame kind of a gift? Or anybody for that matter. Would you give someone a gift and say something like, well, I really have no choice, uh, but my friend or somebody made me do it, so here it is. Um, so again, we come back to, to this issue of nedava. Um, because if we're doing, if what we give God, and by the way, we're not talking merely finances, we're talking about time, talking about energy, um, what we give, period. You know, and, and I felt like the Lord convicted me of that. Um, you know, we, we have a, a dear 15-year-old who can be trying at times and uh, got convicted about uh, not giving him with nedava uh, because he frustrates me sometimes. All right, I'll stop before I uh, mention any names. <laughs> of course, you don't know who I'm talking about. Um, so, if if giving is done, uh, especially in this kind of a context of building God's house, um, there has to be joy in it. Um, again, here, in this case, uh, as you'll see in... in uh, uh, in chapter 35, chapter 36, uh, there was so much that was brought to where Moses had to tell the people, stop! We have an overabundance. And by the way, we're not delving into this because we're in a financial crisis, just in case you wonder. <laughs> uh, we've been in the black, we're blessed. Um, the folks in Irish Bacha are generous. I'm proud of that. I'm delighted. But, you know, giving obviously takes different forms. So, First Chronicles chapter 29, verse 9. 
First Chronicles chapter 29, verse 9. And Ellen, you look like you have it. Yeah, just the one verse. The people were full of joy as they had given willingly. Wholeheartedly, they had given willingly to Adonai. And David the king too was completely filled with joy. Okay, so here you, you, you have a giving party. Everybody's celebrating because they're swept along, uh, not by great oratory, but they're swept along by the Spirit of God. And as we'll see in just a moment, the Holy Spirit is obviously involved in the construction of the tabernacle. Um, and so sometimes people tend to say, you know, uh, the, the giving, this is in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, we are under grace, so on and so forth. Uh, remember what Yeshua sent to his disciples as he sent them out. Freely you have received, freely give. Freely you have received, freely give. Okay? Um, if you know that you've been given freely by the Lord, what will your attitude be is to give freely? Not under compulsion or under guilt, because you feel guilty or feel obligated, but you give freely. Um, whether you're well off or whether you're like the Macedonians. The Macedonians, we see in chapter 9, uh, were poor and were persecuted. And yet Paul says that these guys gave generously. And the language he uses there uh, is out of the uh, largeness of their poverty. They gave greatly. It kind of sounds like Strange, strange way to put it. Um, so, Netava. Okay, the other word, uh, let's come to Exodus chapter 35, verse 10, and 35, 35, and 36, 1 to 2. Exodus 35, verse 10. <coughs> Willie? Sure. All who are still among you are to come and make everything the Lord has commanded. Uh, let's see. Did I, did I suggest the wrong scripture? It's possible. <coughs> Give me a second, please. I'll be right there with you. That happens periodically, so please have mercy on your rabbi. Of course, when I try to find it, I can't find it. <coughs> if I 
That's the word I'm looking at. He said it. Huh? He said it. Okay, I I guess I didn't all hear. All the wise of heart, Hokma Lev, he said. Ah, okay. All the, yeah. Let every wise-hearted man among you mm -hmm. make everything that Adonai has commanded. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Rabbi David. Um, and by the way, uh, the heart is mentioned here, uh, here and also in chapter um, chapter 25, a bunch of times. Again, no great shock. Um, also, 3535. And Willie, would you read that, please? He has filled them with skill to do all kinds of work as engravers, designers, embroiders in blue, purple, and scarlet yarn and fine linen, and weavers, all of them skilled workers. Okay, and then would you go... Uh, I'm sorry, I'm, I thought I had all this together. This is to show you that... Uh, you got the notes right. Yeah. I have the notes right, okay. 36.1.2. Yeah. Um, okay, backtrack to, to verse 30 and, and read down to 35, please, to get the context. Then Moses said to the Israelites, See, the Lord has chosen Bezalel, son of Uri, the son of Ur, and the tribe of Judah, and he has filled him, and he has filled him with the Spirit of God with wisdom, with understanding, with knowledge, and with all kinds of skills, to make artistic designs for work in gold, silver, and bronze, to cut and set stones, to work in wood, and to engage in all kinds of artistic crafts. And he has given both him and... Oh, holy up. Thank you. Son of... Achisamach. Thank you again of the tribe of Dan, the ability to teach others. He has filled them with the skill to do all kinds of work as engravers, designers, embroiders in purple, and I'm sorry, in blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and fine linen, and weavers, all of them skilled workers. Thank you. Um, so first of all, Chacham Lev, see if uh, you have to clear your throat, uh, and that, by the way, is not chacham. Uh, in Spanish, in Spanish, you'd have two J's there. Uh, one brother who is from Mexico uh, wrote about this and said, and I looked at that. It looked like jajam. <laughs> It's Chacham. Chacham, yes. Um, so, what is special about this word Chacham? Uh, you have to understand that from a, a Greek mindset, Chochmah, wisdom, was something uh, abstract. It's like beauty or wisdom or goodness, things that you really can't get your hands around. Uh, Biblically, and from a Hebrew mindset, Chochmah is always practical. Two basic things about Chochmah. First of all, where does it come from? It comes from God. Which, by the way, if you find yourself lacking Chochmah, 
you scream to the Lord, and what will He do? Will He say, "You, you dumb individual"? He will give it to you generously. Uh, and chokhmah is always designed for one purpose. What's that purpose? Morgan. To serve God. Yes. Chokhmah is never given to us because we don't understand, we can't figure something out, we don't know what to do, so we're asking God for wisdom what to do in order to figure things out. Chokhmah is always connected, is always associated with the need to, to know what it is God wants to do and knowing how to do that. And by the way, Hebrew has a bunch of these wisdom words sort of like Eskimos in snow. Um, I guess our people knew that we needed lots of wisdom. So, um, and by the way, here, Chacham Lev is not just, uh, again, it's not abstract, but it really is more connected with the notion of skill. Um, so, is the, is the statement here that this these two individuals that are named did not, or are we assuming, based off the reading, that they did not possess these skills prior, and then they received these skills through the Holy Spirit when they went? No. Or are we assuming that they had these skills when they were in Egypt? Yes and no. <laughs> this 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 brother this brother uh, gets always always yes and no. Look, it's like the spiritual gifts. You know the listing of spiritual gifts uh -huh. in in First Corinthians twelve and Romans twelve and so on. Um, does it always suggest that God gives something out of nothing? For example. Uh, when when the disciples went out on the day of Pentecost right. and they spoke in unknown languages, was that something brand new? To them? To them, yes. Yeah. To them? Yes. To them. Well, yes. Yes, to them. Yes. Right. yes, definitely. These guys were mostly Galileans. Right. I mean, they spoke uh, Aramaic, they, they knew some Hebrew to read, and probably knew some Greek. That's it. And then all of a sudden God does something, bam, and they, they speak all kinds of different languages. Something brand new. Right. However, we have, uh, as we understand Scripture, obviously God uses everything that we have. Nothing is wasted. He uses everything that we have, assuming we bring it laid at, at His feet, in, including our our experiences, our past, good, bad, and ugly, and our gifting, our natural gifting. Right. And the Holy Spirit highlights it and, and em, embellishes and empowers it so that what we do have as natural gifts um, are empowered to produce what it is that God wants. I think, I think that John, just I mean, for a moment, we don't want to split things up, up too much, but the fact is, it doesn't say, like, I, I'm going to be giving you. It definitely says, I gave you. That could be translated, I've given. Is there going to be, like, 
I'm going to get, it's not necessarily a specific future proclamation here in the text, but it doesn't mean that you know we don't want to hang too much on a tense. Right. It's definitely not a future tense. Right. Well, it's not time. I mean, it's, it's a basic, yeah. I'm giving, I've given, I gave, it could be any of those, so it could be a bit of a yes or no. Here's the reason why I ask, because not too long ago, you have a group of people that have nothing. They don't even have straw to make the bricks that they're commanded to make. Now, they leave with an abundance. Everything that they have has been given to them by, by God. Okay. All of the possessions, everything that they've left with, God put it upon the Egyptians to give it to them when they left. So, they are now giving back what for them they had nothing and now they're giving what rightfully so giving back to God what God has given them which comes back to what you had said before and now also I'm thinking okay if this guy if this guy was had these skills but was not able to utilize these skills now not only is he able to give up his of his treasure now he's able to give up his talent that God also has exposed. That's how I've always read this, and that's why I wondered if that's how what you're seeing it too. Uh, yes and no. Okay. <laughs> All right. uh, because besides B'Tzalel and Aholiab, you have a listing of of the men who are able, who are skilled in, in different crafts, and you have listing of women. Who were uh, skilled in in doing all kinds of of uh, work with uh, weaving and so on and so forth. So, and, and I want to challenge John what you said. Uh, I don't know that we want to assume that the people of Israel were dirt poor when they left Egypt. They yes, were when they left. Yes, they were. Yes, they were oppressed. But you have to understand that besides building bricks. Uh, there were slaves doing whatever it is the Egyptians wanted, which in some cases were the bricklaying, other cases were different things. You know, case in point, although Joseph, uh, that was after Joseph's time, but Joseph is case in point um, that some of them were unskilled or semi-skilled, some of them perhaps were skilled and, and yes, God saw to it that the Egyptians dumped all kinds of stuff just to get rid of them. Get out of here, beat it, we're about you, to die. You lost me. Because you lost me in the... They left the treasures, but no, skills... No, but I mean, Joseph, Joseph wasn't a slave. Correct. No, no, no. My, my point with Joseph... Simply was simply to say, here's an example of one Israelite who served in a in a capacity different than just a slave. Absolutely. I'm, I'm not saying that Joseph was a slave. My point my point simply is, uh, I don't think we really need to assume that the only thing the people of Israel did was was build cities, uh, make bricks. Because no, my assumption was that as a slave, they had no they, their possessions were limited. That's correct. So you have two things here. You have that the people of Israel were skilled and semi-skilled doing whatever it is the Egyptians wanted. Absolutely. Um, and 
God poured all kinds of possessions on them when they left, when they as they were leaving Egypt. Yes, ma'am. Earlier in thirty-five, Exodus thirty-five, it said, "Let every wise-hearted man among you come and make everything the Adonai has commanded." So there's, there's, there's the assumption that there were people who were already very skilled in the different areas, the crafts, the within that. I mean, it was a massive population. So, so going later in the chapter, they were skilled. They, we don't know when the ruach was. You know, like it, there's no timestamp. It's just the principle: skilled people, and they're asked to do these things. Regardless of their, the, yeah. the the point is, regardless of their level of skill, God took as He does with us, and whatever level of skill we have, and He uses it for for His purposes. Uh, some of us are highly skilled. Some of us are not so skilled. the The point is, um, He uses all of it, and that's the case here. Um, so. Then, then we obviously, uh, and by the way, this, uh, these phrases of wise in heart or skilled is repeated over and over and over and over again in chapter 35. Um, because, and you make the connection that this was to be God's house, what did God want his house to look like? Beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, and and again, I, I realize there's a balance there, because where God's people are, God will dwell with us regardless of how beautiful it is. But but especially in this kind of a context, um, God wanted the people of Israel to know, you guys are not slaves. And furthermore, I am who I am. I'm the Lord of the universe. I'm the Lord of the earth. And I need to dwell in something that is proper and fitting. Same kind of principle we find in the construction of the temple, uh, where David Solomon said, um, "The king of, of the universe can, must must have a magnificent place for him to dwell." So, balance there is. Um, we're we're not obsessed. You know, for example, whenever it is that God will give us a building, I say whenever, um, we're not going to be obsessed about everything being absolutely perfect and spectacular. However, what we will want to do is see to it that the house that we're dwelling in, that God is going to be dwelling in, will, will be as excellent as, as we can make it. Why? Not because it's a reflection of us, but because it is a reflection of Him. So, um, Betzalel, by the way, you need to be able to pronounce Betzalel. Yeah, for some of us it's not very difficult, but uh, English doesn't have a T-S sound. By the way, there is a, uh, an art institute in Israel called Betzalel be that as it may. Um, so the Lord filled Bezalel, who comes from what tribe? Judah. Tribe of Judah. Uh, with wisdom, with understanding, and with knowledge. 
and if you were to look at Isaiah chapter 11, that speaks about the uh, the coming the coming Messiah, the branch, the root of David. He will be filled with the Holy with the Spirit of God, with wisdom, understanding, and knowledge. Um, that's pretty significant stuff. Um, because Betzalel obviously is the master builder here. Where Chabad comes from? It's trivia, right? Yeah. Chokhmah binadad. Yes. Yes, that's right. Yes, there is a uh, an ultra orthodox organization called Chabad, um, yeah. also known as Lubavitch. So it's an acronym. Their name is an acronym. It's not an actual word. Right. Those, those three wisdom words make up the word Chabad. Okay. okay. All right. Um, a couple of other words, um, um, and tonight will be uh, the conclusion of Hebrew words for a while, anyways. Um, two words: Malacha. No, 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 not king. Malacha is uh, work, but special kind of work in Avodah. Avodah is both work and worship. It's one of the worship words in Hebrew, which, which means that if you are a worshiper of God, you're also a well, what kind of worker? Servant, Servant of God. Um, Melacha is is very uh, is is the work that is done here in this in this tabernacle. That's the, that's the don't do on Shabbat kind of work. Yes, it is specialized work. Um, so I, w I wanted to take just a few minutes uh, before we uh, sign off to talk about the materials and uh, let's come back to Exodus 25 and let's see where am I Yeah, verse 3, and uh, read verse uh, 3 to, to 7. These are the contributions which you are to receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet cloth, fine linen and goat hair, ram skins dyed red, seal skins, acacia wood, oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil, and for the sweet incense. Onyx stones and setting stones for the ephod and for the breastplate. Alright, let's take a couple minutes and focus on this. Um, silver, gold, and bronze, well, okay. Um, they got it from the Egyptians. We know that because it explicitly said 
that as Israel was coming out, the Egyptians gave them so, uh, gold and silver. Um, now what about uh, the dyes that are mentioned here? Three basic dyes that are mentioned. Um, blue and Purple and, let's see, purple and scarlet. Now, you don't really think much about, uh, uh, about uh, colored uh, uh, fabrics, thank you. Just, yeah, you know, you go to the store, pick them up, no big deal. Uh, if you were to backtrack, about 2,500 years, um, in order for you to get um, blue and purple, you'd have to be able to go to someone who was trading in those, and blue and purple came from shellfish. That was... Huh? Yeah, but it, but it was very highly specialized. It was uh, shellfish that was found in the uh, in the Mediterranean. Uh, the same thing was with the uh, scarlet. Um, that came from a worm. I know you really wanted to know that. Uh, but the point is, all these things just just the threads themselves uh, were very costly. Now, what about what about linen? Do do you think much about linen? Not something that you lie at night awake thinking about linen. What was special about linen? It's natural. It's natural. Well, it's natural. And it's very durable. But it's very durable and it also can take a dye nicely. Okay. It's a spun fabric. Who wore linen? Yeah. The Egyptian royalty. Olive oil. Now we don't think much about ram skins. Uh, you can possibly say that that was part of the herds that they had. But uh, hides of sea cows. And by the way, if, depending on your translation, you might come up with something like dagong or something real bizarre. Uh, that was something that came from the Red Sea. Again, not something that the people of Israel dealt with and had access to on a, on a given basis. Again, I just think, it, it strikes me, and I'm sorry, but I, it just strikes me that as you're leaving and you're going out, somebody goes, hey, I want you to take this seed cow. And you're like, sure, that's what I'll take. And lo and behold, that's what God wants. I just find that amusing. Strike me weird, but I find that amusing. Well, it, it, it is... It is amusing, not that they would carry a sea cow with them. Right. No, I, but, I know, but I just I find that amusing. The, the thing that you're like, why in the world? And then God goes, that's what I want. I find that interesting. Well, what they kill the shelf, the shellfish. Um, I mean, the, the shellfish from making that dies in a and a worm. They were in the desert. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> where, did, kind of, where did they get all this? They get all this. It's kind well, of hard. It's kind of, are you saying they came out of Egypt with it? Or? <laughs> yes. uh, look, 
yes, they came out of Egypt, they must have come out of Egypt, because in the desert you would not have all these things. Sir? Look, it's also possible that there was some trading going on. I don't know. Mo most likely, uh, these things came because they were given by the Egyptians who were dying to get them out of there, literally dying to get them out of there. Um, spices and anointing oil for their fragrant incense. Now, what was so special about the fragrant incense? God wanted it for what purpose? For two, two purposes. One is for the anointing which we'll see. Anointing of the high priest, exactly. They needed they needed to be properly anointed. But the other thing is, and, and here comes another one of my infamous diagrams, so please bear with me. Um, this is the, the holy place, and this is the holy of holies. Uh, right here, on the other side of the veil, was the altar of incense. And remember what the high priest had to do once a year? Sacrifice. No, he didn't purify. Well, yes, he did. You're right. He had to purify himself before he went into into the uh, into the uh, tabernacle, to the holy place, the holy of holies. He took a censer, basically a container that had live coals on it, and he took a pinch of the incense and he put it on the sensor and it created basically like a, a cloud that hid the presence of God with from him so that he can come into the Holy of Holies and not get struck. So God, remember we talked about uh, another word and we'll finish with this tablit pattern God had all this planned out uh, long before the people of Israel were ready to come out of Egypt, long before they were ready to, to build the tabernacle. And by the way, remember that the same thing was true with David. David didn't just sit and strategize and design. Uh, David, Scripture says that, that in his spirit, I believe by, his, by the spirit, he received a pattern from God of what, what the temple needed to look like. And so what leaves me with this is a simple re reminder of a couple of things. One is God wants to dwell with us. God wants us to be holy so that he can dwell with us. And God, and God has things planned out uh, for what that is supposed to look like. So, if you take it from the macro, from the big uh, tabernacle, temple, into the micro, uh, our daily life, you realize that the same principles apply with us. That God wants to dwell with us. He wants our lives in all the different categories to be holy, to 
be set apart. In other words, that we don't have areas of our life where we are holy and spiritual and then other areas of our life where we are uh, defiled and unholy. And God has a plan for what His dwelling in us needs to look like. And it is to be a bunch of holy people for what purpose? To serve Him and to be uh, bright lights in a dark environment. This is reality for us, folks. Um, I'm not. I'm not a. Uh, uh, I'm not someone who, want, who has wanted to be negative, but I look around and I realize our culture is becoming less and less moral. I'll put it that way. And so for us, the challenge is to say, you know, I'm not going to go and hide in a messianic ghetto. And also because I want to be holy, equipped, chokhmah, uh, wise and skilled to be able to engage with people around. Okay, uh, next time I believe we'll get into a discussion of the tabernacle and what things look like and some of the sacrifices, some of the things were involved. And John, would you finish for us, sir? Lord, we thank you that uh, you call us to serve, you call us to be your light. But Lord, we're more thankful that uh, you don't you don't expect us to do that on your own. As it was said, Father, your spirit is sent to us. You take what is our gifting and then you magnify it beyond any comprehension that we might have, Father. So, Father, I pray that you would give us those appointments, give us those opportunities, and give us the hesitant, Father, to rely on you uh, to make those, those commitments with others. We thank you for this time, Father. We thank you for our rabbis and for their ability to to teach. Be with us as we depart and keep us safe. Father, it's in your holy son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Amen.